heaven. The way now that we praise you, that we worship you, is to listen. And we listen because we realize we're utterly dependent upon you. We need your word. We don't live simply by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So I pray that your word is strong. I pray it's powerful. I pray it works within my, within our hearts, God, that we might follow you all the days of our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Turn, please, to First Peter. Turn, please, to First Peter in chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 3. First Peter chapter 2. Hear the word of God. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is is good. Now I want to concentrate our attention this morning on verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. I do that because uh, that expression... In order to grow up to salvation first is an interesting one, obviously, because you may simply say, well, I'm already saved, aren't I? I mean, how is it that I'm going to grow up to this uh, salvation? Of course, the answer is, as we've been noting all along, that as Peter uses the word salvation, he, he talks about it in his fullest sense. That is, there's a pastness to it. In chapter 1, we know that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. Past tense, something has happened radical to give us new birth, new life. And yes, a person who is a believer in Christ can say, I am saved because God has already caused you to be born again into this living hope. In relation to sin, the penalty for your sin is taken. You are forgiven. Past tense, I am saved. But also, Peter recognizes that once a person has been saved, then one also is is being saved. That is, there's this growth. He says in, in, um, in verse 9, uh, middle of verse 8, though you do not now see him, chapter 1, you believe in him and, are rejoice, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right now, you're, you're, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, this great salvation. Because in the present moment, what's happening in regards to sin is that its power is being lessened. That is, as we walk by faith and as we mature in our faith, then the power of sin is being lessened in the context of our lives. We're growing, we could say it positively, in holiness. And then he speaks of this salvation that is to be revealed in the last time, this salvation that's, that's coming. And by that he simply means the fruition of all of this. And in relation to sin at that moment in time, what will take place is, is that there will be no more sin at all present among us. So in the past, sin is dealt with the penalty. In the present, it's power. And in the future, there will be no sin at all. It will not be present among us. In fact, at that point in time, when that salvation comes in all of its fullness, then everything will reflect our Lord Jesus. That we will be conformed to the image of Christ and everything that we look at will reflect Him, will be just as He likes it. Sin won't exist in that in that place. And so Peter is saying, I want you to grow up to salvation. 
I want you to mature towards it. You're saved, yes, but now I want to work in your life in such a way as that increasingly you become conformed to the image of Christ. And he says, I want to give you now the means by which you're able to do that. He says, I want you, like newborn infants, to long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it, that is by this milk, whatever it is, by this milk, you may grow to salvation. And I, and I think what Peter has in mind is, as we're growing towards this salvation, as we're growing to it, with respect to it, consistent with it, as we're maturing along, that what we'll see, what we would expect to see, is an increase in our hope. Remember in verse 3 of chapter 1, he commands us that we're to place our hope fully in the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, when Jesus returns, there's a grace that's to come. Again, we've already been recipients of grace, but when he returns, there's a fullness of grace that is to come. And that grace will bring perfect conformity to the image of Christ. And he says, set your hope there. That's what you're desiring. You see the effects of sin and its misery, and your, your hope is to be free of all of that. He says, set your hope there. And if that's your hope, then he says, now get on with it. Be holy, is the next command. Be holy, for God is holy. So I want you to live in holiness. And then he says, I want you to conduct your lives with fear as, as, as exiles. That is, to understand that you're really a citizen of heaven, though you reside on the earth, so you're sort of a resident alien. And he says, I want you to know that you're to live in the fear of God, that he's the one you're to revere. And the reason you're to revere him is because he's the one you call father, but understand he still judges every person impartially. And you begin to think, how is it that I can be so intimate with this one and call him father when he's also the judge of all? Only because, as Peter goes on to explain, we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And you think of that. Who else would you revere? Who else would you honor? Who else would you fear? And then he says, if you're one who hopes that sin will be gone and you'll be conformed to the image of Christ, and thus you're living as God enables you in holiness, in the fear of God. Now, this translates itself very practically. Next command is that we're to love each other earnestly from the heart. And now he's going to say, I want to give you the means by which you can grow to deeper hope. I want you to give, the, give you the means by which you can grow towards holiness. I want to give you the means by which you can grow in your fear of God, your honor of Him, your, revere, your reverence of Him. And I want you to, get, to give you the means by which you are to grow in love for each other. Now, I raised some questions last week as we talked about love because I shared with you how difficult for me, I think for us, really love is when we really understand it. Because the, the standard of that love is for one another is that we're to love each other as Christ has loved us. Uh, that's a standard there. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. So he came to serve us and he, he led aside his own glory. He humbled himself and came as a servant to give himself for us. Though we had grieved him by our sin, though we had hurt him by our sin, still he loved us to the degree that he took upon himself 
our sin and all our iniquities and all our sorrows and all our griefs and died for us. And he says, I want you to love each other like that. Even though you might hurt each other, still, I want you to humble each other and forgive. I want you to humble yourselves and be kind. I want you to humble yourselves and be patient. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And when I think about that standard of love, I just simply melt before it. And I wonder, do I have any hope to love like that? Do I have any hope to really reverence God as I should? Do I have any hope, really, that I am going to grow in holiness? And will I really set my hope, my heart's desire, on really being conformed to the image of Christ? Is there any hope for me in all of that? And of course the answer is yes. And Peter says the answer is yes because we've been born again. That is, as believers in Christ, we recognize that a radical change has happened in us. That God has wrought, God has brought, God has put, created, caused in us a radical break from one who doesn't hope in him, the one who isn't holy, the one who um, doesn't fear him, the one who doesn't love, a radical break and put his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways. He's written his law upon our hearts means that now our affections are towards him and thus we're inclined to follow after him. It's an amazing thing. It's just an amazing thing. I, I never get over it. I look in the mirror and go, whew, that's really cool. And it's really amazing. But that's what God has done. And so Peter says you've been born again by the living and enduring word of God. And so now he says, how, since this living and enduring word of God has brought you life, how is it then that you are going to be able to grow to this salvation, to mature as a Christian, to deepen your hope in him and his coming, to, to live a holy life, to fear him, to love each other? How are you going to grow and mature in that? He says, by the same way that you we're born again in the first place by longing for pure spiritual milk. And the image he gives us of this longing, and some of your Bibles may have craving, which I really like better, this notion of craving this, that we're to be like newborn infants. Now, newborn infants are utterly dependent upon milk. Newborn infants crave it. Newborn infants um, can't be satisfied by anything else. Um, if your child's on a three-hour feeding schedule, this little infant, God bless you, I know that's sort of what the books say, but none, they're, they're not a, those kids don't read those books. Um, and we can read them too. We say, every three hours I'm going to feed you. And they go, Phew. because there's only one thing that can really satisfy them, this milk. And they're dependent upon it and they crave it. And if it's not there, they let you know it. They demand it. They scream for it. Uh, it's the only thing on their minds. And Peter's saying, I want you to be like that with this pure spiritual milk because you'll be utterly dependent on it because by it you'll grow toward this salvation. You'll mature in your salvation. So the question obviously is, what is this pure spiritual milk? Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible or a King James Bible, it kind of gives you some help here because it translates the little word spiritual rather than spiritual. It translates it as of the word. So you should long for the pure milk of the word. And the reason that those translations translate that little word spiritual, A, is because it's only dumped some seminary stuff on you. A, it's just a hard word to translate. The only other place in the New Testament it's used is in Romans in chapter 12, verse 1, that speaks of our spiritual service of worship or, in some other translations, our reasonable service of worship. Uh, meaning 
that this is something that, that is of the mind and heart. And that little word spiritual, the reason we get away with attaching it to the word of God, is because it's derived from the word for the word. The word is logos. Some of you know that probably. It just simply means the word. And Peter has been talking about the living and abiding word of God. And so he's saying, listen, the way that you grow up to this salvation is by longing for this word of God, that which nourishes the mind and the heart. Peter's already saying this very thing is alive, it's living and abiding, it's living and enduring, it's imperishable, it lives so that it actually brings new life to you. Just like when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, when you became a Christian, when you came to faith, the Lord called your name and and life came because God's word creates. In Genesis 1, you know, God said, let there be light and there was light. And so his word, you see, creates, it brings that which it purposes. Isaiah 55, I think I read this call to worship last Sunday. Isaiah 55, that when God's word goes out, it accomplishes that for which it's purposed. It accomplishes its purpose. Because it can, because nothing can thwart God's word. When he speaks it, it is true and it comes to pass. And God wants us to know that about his word. Turn to Deuteronomy and chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1. Moses is speaking to the people as they're ultimately going to enter into the land. They've left Egypt, gone through the wilderness... And so he's describing that situation to them. Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today shall be careful, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. This is the purpose for which he led them 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. He's saying, I did this. I could have taken you from Egypt to the promised land more quickly. I could have taken you on a more direct route, but I didn't. I took you the way you went for a particular reason because I wanted to humble you and I wanted to test to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and led you and let you uh, hunger and fed you with manna. God took the people to places where there was no water. He took them to places where there was no food. He kept them going for 40 years without letting them really settle down and, 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 and build cities and, 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 uh, and to be able to produce those things to provide for themselves. And why did he do that? Scripture says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying, listen, which would you rather have? Would you rather have bread or would you rather have the promise of God that he says, I'm with you and I will feed you? Well, you could have this bread and it might keep you going for three hours. His promise will give you life. He says, I want you to know that what's most important, what keeps you alive, what is life to you is my very word. It isn't what you see 
but it's my promise. It isn't what you see, but it's my very word. That's why Moses could say to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 45, he says, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. He says, listen, without these words, you'll die. Not only die physically, but you'll die eternally. You need the very word of God. Live by my word, and it will be life to you. You know the promise to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. God says to him, the, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Follow this word. It's life to you. The psalmist, Psalm 19. You can keep up with me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Psalm 19, don't. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. When your soul is down, what brings it life? Well, God's word. That's why the psalmist could, could, could write in Psalm 42, in, in verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist is speaking to his soul. He's talking to himself. He's talking to his own soul. It's like you do when you drive down the street. You're talking to yourself. and Somebody pulls up beside you and you pretend like you're singing. And we all know what's going on. He's talking to yourself. Well, that's all right. And and the psalmist is speaking to his own soul. He says, why are you downcast? Because he he must be discouraged. He must be depressed. How does he get out of that depression? And how does his hope increase and his desire for holiness and his fear of God and his desire to get out of himself and love each other? How how is that enlivened? Well, he speaks the word of God to him. Now, the psalmist had an advantage because he was writing the word of God at this time. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's saying, listen, I know you're discouraged right now, but, 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 but bear in mind this, that a day of salvation is coming and, and everything will be great. Keep that on the front burner, not your discouragement. Um, we can work uh, through the scripture, for instance, in Romans in chapter 1 and verse 16. The apostle writes concerning the gospel. He says, For the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. He didn't say the gospel is information. He didn't say the gospel is just information so that if you're curious about the gospel, you might understand it. He said, no, no, no. The gospel is the power of God. It works in your life. It works in people's lives. I don't know about you, but when I'm sharing the gospel with people, and I'm talking about Jesus to people, deep inside, no matter what I'm allowed to look like on my face, deep inside, there's this little grin. It's going, you don't get this, but you're getting nailed. You know, this is the power of God right now. And the power of God upon a person is what, by this living and enduring word of God, Peter says, transforms the heart. It changes. It brings new life as God appoints it to do that as a spirit attends it. That's the great thing about the gospel. It brings life. John Bunyan, I may read a little Bunyan if I have time. You know I got started late today, don't you? Uh, I might read a little Bunyan later. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, 
17th century Christian preacher, saint, man, uh, lover of Christ, powerful man, made up this little doggerel, this little rhyme. He said, run, John, run. His name was John, so he's writing this to himself. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. See, he read the law. He goes, he's telling me, go, John, honor God, follow him, but it doesn't give me the wherewithal to do that, the law. All it does is come and reveal my sin. So he writes, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. It does. You see, the gospel comes and says, ah, there's forgiveness in Christ. Yes, here's your sin. Forgiveness in Christ. And it comes and this living and enduring word of God. You see, if that gospel is believed by you, that means that God has given you that gospel and it's bid you fly. And it's also given you wings. So you're flying. You know, in Romans in chapter 10, as Paul is talking about the fact that everybody who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. How are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Then verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Yes, we send them so they can believe, but how do they believe? They believe only because this word is a powerful one, because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. I mean, I'll be honest with you, if I could just be this autobiographical personal for a second. The only reason I stand up and do this with an inside smile is because I believe the word of God is powerful. I believe that if I read the Word of God to you, and I believe that if I speak it to you, and I believe that if I talk about it with you, your life will be changed. Not because I'm powerful, but I'm just the guy on the tape. It's hard to fit in there. It's a skill. But because God's Word is powerful, and I believe... That when you're calling each other on the phone and talking about Christ, that his, his, his power is, is moving and at work and your lives are being transformed. And I believe that when you're in Bible studies and when you're in Sunday school classes and when you're in covenant groups and when you're Wednesday night suppers and when you're, again, talking with people on the phone and when you're in your devotional life and, and the word of Christ is first and foremost on your mind, the very power of God is present there to change and to work and to do. I mean, that's why we're so adamant about all this stuff. That's why we have Bible studies all the time. That's why we have Sunday school classes. That's why we have covenant groups. That's why we have Wednesday night supper so we can gather together and we can make venues so that the word of God can go from one person to another because we believe it's powerful. It's not magic. It's God, you see. It's God behind it. It's God at work as he so sovereignly wills. God at work by his word. It's powerful. Uh, 2 Timothy in chapter 3. In verse 14. 
Paul writing to Timothy says, But as for you, that is Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. Do you know that? I mean, when you open your Bible, you know, you should kind of duck. Ah, because it's, it's God. And he's, he's breathing forth his word to you. Uh, it's his powerful word. This isn't something that we just sort of casually pick up. I know we do, but, but casually pick up. This is, this is the very word of God. Um, you know, my stupid little deal where I never put anything on top of a Bible. It's horrible. The other day, Karen and I were just sort of looking for houses and, and, uh, cause we, you know, may need a different one. And so when I, I, I had to confess, when I walked through this house, I saw this Bible is under two other books and I put it on top. Uh, I thought, I don't know if they'll notice, but, but they, you know, just trying to help them. Uh, it's, it's the word of God. You know, you open it. God breathed, you understand. That when we open this, this isn't like reading the newspaper. It's not, it's not like reading any book. You want to you, you know what God has to say. You do this, you know. I mean, this is the word of God. This is how we hear him. This is how we hear God speak. And he says, that it's God breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Um, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work that is grow up to salvation. Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we probably in that verse could get hung up as, uh, what's it mean, this division of soul and spirit? How, how, what's different between soul and spirit? What's different of this joints and marrow and all of that? But I think that's the very point. The author of Hebrews is saying the word of God is so powerful, so strong, so sharp, that it can go places and divide things that, that you can't even imagine dividing. It's that particular, it's that strong, it's that powerful, it goes deep. And when it goes deep, it brings light. And when it brings light, it shows all the sin that's there, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But the great thing about this living Word of God, this, this great thing about the Gospel, not only does it reveal this sin, and it, it, and it shows it, but it also sweeps. It also cleanses and cleans. Because with this message of sin and, and, and the wrath of God upon sin is also this message of forgiveness because of Christ. It's like the old hymn says, I know my sin in all its greatness, but also him who sets me free. It's all of that, you see. So Peter's saying, you want to grow up to this salvation, you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, you want to grow in holiness, you want to be a person who fears and honors God. You want to be one who loves another, then long for the pure spiritual milk, long for this word of God, so that by it you may grow up to salvation. So how does this really work? How do we do this? How do we apply this word? You remember Jesus. As Satan came to him, he lived upon this word of God. You remember Satan came to him after Jesus was in the midst of a 40-day fast, hadn't eaten for 40 days. He said to Jesus, you know, you can command these stones to be bread. And he could have, Jesus could have. But he remembered the line out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, you know, I, I know this though, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. He says, I don't need bread. I have the word of God. 
And if bread comes so important to me, Satan, that that it becomes an idol to me, that it becomes my very thought, that I, I realize that I think I can't live without it, and I disobey God to make this bread by following you, then I lose everything. I lose life. If you had said to Jesus, which would satisfy more, having a piece of bread after your 40-day fast or having the promise of God that you have his word, he would say, oh, what satisfies is this word. That's what fills me up. And of course, Satan takes him, shows him the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, you can have these kingdoms, which would have been a nice little shortcut for Jesus since the way that he got the kingdoms was to go through the cross. But he said, no, no, no. I know this word, and this word brings me life. It satisfies me to obey it, to say that, that, that I should worship God in him only. And then Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, jump down, because don't you know that when you jump down that the angels will attend to you? Well, the truth of the matter is they would attend to him. But Jesus, in essence, says, I don't need to test God, because I already know that's true. I already know he cares for me. I already know they'd attend for me. I don't have to jump from the pinnacle of the temple at your word because this other word gives me life. Uh, John Bunyan. I have eight minutes because I plan to go till ten after. You know his life, I suppose, some of you. As I mentioned earlier, 17th century... Poor man, uneducated, relatively speaking. Um, was unconverted until his middle 20s. Lived by his own word, a raucous, um, ungodly, uh, drunken, blasphemous life. Uh, when he was 15 years old, his mother and sister died. His father then remarried the next year, during which Bunyan himself was drafted into the service in the military for war. It's a good thing he was not killed, for he wasn't converted. Took a wife at the age of 21. She brought along with her a couple of books, Christian books. He read them. It was soundly, as he would put it, converted. And then in his later middle to the later 20s, began to preach so powerfully that people would come for miles around to hear him preach in his 10th year. Uh, during this marriage, he had four children, one of whom was born blind, which was a tremendous hardship in those days. Uh, after his 10th year of marriage, his wife died. He remarried, and in that first year of marriage, his wife became pregnant, his new wife became pregnant. And during that time, he was arrested and thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. She miscarried, and he was in prison another 12 years, mostly, out at times, Prison in those days, as it is even today, a hardship, but even a greater hardship in those days because it was up to the family to take care of the one in prison. The state did not do that. And so his wife, stepmother to his four children, one of whom was blind, had it upon her shoulders to care for him. He would try to earn a living by selling shoelaces, making and selling shoelaces while he was in prison. That wasn't terribly successful, and his family lived in some measure of poverty, and that concerned him during the course of his life. And the question is, how did he live during those times? He writes like this. Before I came to prison, I saw what was coming and had especially two considerations warm upon my heart. 
Let me just give you the second one. He says, as to the second consideration, that saying was of great use to me. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead, 2 Corinthians 1.9. And so we put it to him that God would help him. But this scripture I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass the sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyments, and all is dead to me, and myself is dead to them. The second, and this is the one I want to stress, the second was to live upon God that is invisible. He says, listen, everything else is taken away from me. What else can I have to live upon? So I'll live on God. And the way that he lived upon God was to live upon the word of God. He writes this. He said, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen and felt him indeed. Oh, that word. We have not preached unto you cunningly devised fables. And that God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God were blessed words unto me in my imprisoned conditions. These three or four scriptures also have been great refreshments in this condition to me. John 14, 1 through 4. That is, he meditated and lived on the very fact that Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you in a sense so that you may be with me. He lived on that. He said that even though I'm in this horrible place and even though living on the earth is a very difficult situation and I know a day will come when I'll live with Christ. And that fed his very soul. So John 16.33, that passage that says that where Jesus says you will have tribulation in the world but don't worry, I've overcome it. He knew he would have tribulation in the world. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. His family was in poverty and yet he he grabbed a hold of this because Jesus says, in the world you'll have tribulation, but don't worry. I've overcome the world. And every day, you get the impression this bunion arose and thought of this verse, and he saw himself in his surroundings in prison. He would look at his prison guards and smile and think, you're done for. We've overcome you. I can endure this. For he said, that sometimes when I have been in the savor of them, these verses, I've been able to laugh at destruction and to fear neither the horse nor his rider. I've had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and my being with Jesus in another world. But perhaps the most difficult thought for Bunyan was his blind daughter. He writes this. He said, but notwithstanding these helps, I found myself a man encompassed with infirmities. The parting with my wife and poor children have often been to me in this place as the pooling the flesh from the bones. It's a very graphic sense. So that's how I felt. And I think, I think if you're a father, most well, certainly a mom, you would understand having left your family to live in certain destitute. And it would feel as if flesh were being pulled from the bones. And he said that not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should often brought to mind the many hardships, the miseries and wants that my poor family was to meet should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all beside. Oh, the thoughts of hardship I thought of my poor blind one might go under 
would break my heart to pieces. Poor child, I thought, what sorrow art thou like to have for thy portion in this world? Thou must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand calamities, though I cannot now endure the wind should blow upon thee. But yet recalling myself, thought I, I must venture you all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. So in essence, he said, I simply must leave you with God. But you get a sense that that wasn't simply a resignation, but rather he thought, I'm leaving you in the best of all hands because I trust him. Though I saw in this condition, I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet I thought, I must do it, I must do it. And now I must, and now I thought on those two milk cows that were to carry the ark of God into another country and to leave their calves behind them. But that which helped me in this temptation were various considerations, of which three in special here I will name. The first was the consideration of these two scriptures. Leave thy fatherless children, and I will preserve them alive. And let thy widows trust in me. And again the Lord said, Truly it shall be well with your remnant. Truly I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in time of evil. He looked at those passages and he lived on them. He says, God has said he'll take care of my children. God has said he'll take care of my wife. God has said that he'll cause the enemy to, 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 to do me well. And so he trusted, you see, in those passages of Scripture. And he lived on them. And his hope was strengthened. He grew in holiness. His fear of God was enhanced because he honored God and God alone. And he was then free to love if you'll indulge me one more quickly, George Mueller. Mueller is known <clears throat> primarily for his work with orphans. Uh, he lived most of the 19th century. He was born in 1805 and died in 1898. He built five orphan home, homes, tended to approximately 10,000 orphans during his life. And during that time, as you might know, for 68 years of ministry, he never once directly solicited any money. He never took a salary. He simply lived as people would give, and he trusted God, and no one ever went hungry. And his orphanages and his orphans thrived. But the thing that enabled him to do that, according to his own testimony, was the scripture, a book he read during the course of his life more than 200 times from cover to cover. And we can see how it is that it informed his life and gave him life as he speaks of the death of his wife. He writes this. The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give peace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from, that, from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 84.11 Now, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace and to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor worthless sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin, I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I've often said before, from taking God as, as, at his word, believing.
what he says. Did you hear that? I'll never forget some years ago, a woman whose husband was dying said to me, if he dies, then it must be that I'm to be a widow. She trusted that no good thing would be withheld from her. At the funeral of his wife, the Mueller preached how I don't know. His text was Psalm 119, verse 68, which is, Thou art good and dost good. He said, The Lord is good and doeth good. All will be according to his own blessed character. Nothing but that which is good, like himself, can proceed from him. If he pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good like himself. What I have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does, that I may glorify him. After this, my soul, not only aimed, but this, my soul, by God's grace, attained to. I am satisfied with God. He lived on the truth of God's word, that God is good. And no matter what it may have looked like at that moment, he lived on the word of God. Not on bread, not on sight, but on God's word. See, Peter knows that like newborn infants that were to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed, he says, really since, you have tasted that the Lord is good. He said, listen, you've already tasted that the Lord is good because his word has already brought you new life. You've already tasted this. You've already seen your own sin and now you've seen the forgiveness of Christ and you've seen the goodness of God. And you see, once you've tasted really the goodness of God, he says you become addicted to it. There's nothing that, that can satisfy like that. And if that is really true in your own life, then live off this word and you will see again and again and again and you will taste again and again and again that the Lord is good. And that, you see, will drive you to long for his word and to live from it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that you would grant to us a longing for your word. You've bid us fly this morning. You've bid us to desire your word. Now I pray you give us wings that we would know and taste your goodness. And Father, that with this taste of your goodness that we would crave it so much so that your word would be our very life. Work that in us deeply. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you, that elders will be available to pray, so please take advantage of that. I remind you of our time on Wednesday evening uh, at the Lake Park for our farewell to the boomers and our summer gathering, so please come. And I remind you of our time tonight with Scott and Jane Quida on 7 o'clock. Nursery provided, so please, please come for that as well. Our response to the benediction is, God's word is life. Amen. Now, when you say God's word is life, you're simply confessing that you understand that you're not to live by bread alone, but in fact real life comes from every word that proceeds that comes from God's mouth. And you'll live upon that 
And when you say amen, you're not saying the end. You're saying yes, that's true. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, God's word is life. Amen.